0: DOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly.
1: Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, June the 23rd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. We're looking forward to speaking with you on a topic of your choosing this morning. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So, up late again last night, but it's so worth it, and we're so close. One win away from the Colorado Avalanche clinching the Stanley Cup. Now it's not over yet. Of course, the two time defending champions, Lightning, are not going to roll over. But a big win last night, 3 2 in overtime. It's just three years ago this week that Alex LeHook was drafted 16th overall by the Avs. And here he is in the finals, reaching out almost ready to touch the cup. Amazing stuff. There were some questions last night about the officiating. So, in the third period in particular, I know the referees would like to put their whistles in their pockets and let the players decide the outcome as opposed to power plays, possibly. But there were some pretty nasty things that went on there. I mean, Landis absolutely boarded one of the Lightning players. That's a penalty all day long. There was a couple of trips that were so blatant. It's a wonder why some penalties weren't called. But most of the most concern for especially John Cooper, the coach of the Lightning, was the overtime goal scored by Nazem Kadri. Too many men on the ice. Now, in the first period of a game, game 20 of the regular season, that might get called. But I'm not so sure that Cooper's inconsolable presser last night is really on point. But I might might be in the minority, but eh, you want to talk about it, let's do it. Speaking of officiating, there are some researchers at Memorial University looking at the mental health aspect of minor and amateur officials. You've seen it if you've ever been at the the gym or at the soccer pitch or at the hockey rink. Sometimes when parents are living vicariously through their child of any age, the referees are under siege. Now, it's one thing if you're an NHL ref or an NBA ref and getting taunted from the stands, you're a pro. You're getting paid well to do what you're supposed to be doing and to understand the rules inside and out. In minor and amateur, it's really a bit over the top. I get emotions. People get carried away, and all of a sudden, as opposed to just going, oh, bad call, quietly, it's all out. And they're looking at why there's so few officials that are returning. There was a big soccer tournament in Nova Scotia. They had to cancel it for this year. They couldn't get the officials. You know, they told the organizers that we took a nice mental break from being yelled at by parents, so we're not coming back. I can get another job making similar money without the sort of mental anguish that I have to suffer because parents get carried away. So remember that when you go to support your child and all the kids playing. Alright, so I uh, sent this note by my buddy Steve Crickard about NL content at the Memorial Cup. Of course, that's the quest for junior hockey supremacy, major junior hockey. It's being held in uh, St. John, New Brunswick, and St. John's native Tra- Travis Crickard, pardon me, is an assistant coach with the host Sea Dogs, looking to be the first host team to win the Memorial Cup since the winter- Windsor Spitfires they did it back in 2017. So we usually have more NL content at the Memorial Cup, but we've got Travis Crickard, and good luck to him and the Dogs. They look pretty good. I watched a little bit of the game against Hamilton. All right. Uh, <laughs> while I was warming up for the hockey game last night, I don't know if this ever happens to you, but it happens to me just about every year. I got sucked in to watching the Westminster Kennel Club dog show again. <laughs> I know it's really hoity-toity kind of stuff, but, I mean, the animals are beautiful. And so last night, the Besson show was a bloodhound named Trumpet. First time ever that a bloodhound has won best in show. So in the finals, Trump beat a French bulldog, a German shepherd, a Maltese, an English setter, a Samoyed, and a Lakeland Terrier to win the trophy at the 146th Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show in Tarrytown, New York. Now, it's usually held at Madison Square Garden. It has moved out to uh, Lindhurst, the state. It's usually held during the winter, too, What is that Lindhurst this time around. But (laughs) I don't know. Did you watch any Westminster? Westminster? Anyway, Trumpet, way to go. And this is a really fun story. Buddy Wassey's name and the other fellas have been forever immortalized, immortalized in fossil form. It's a great lead to the story. So there's this uh, professor of paleontology from the University of Ottawa named Jonathan Adrain. Originally from Alberta, he came here to do some field work back in the 90s, stopped into a gas station and picked up a cassette of "Making ferbert Harbor by Buddy Wassey's name and the other fellas, listened to it on loop. He has come back to do some more field work. This was outside of uh, Mainbrook, south of St. Anthony. And he found two of the smallest adult trilobites that he has ever found. They are 450 million years old. The trilobite has been extinct for 250 million years. He has named these fossils after Buddy Wassey's name and the other fellas. <laughs> so they will forever be known as ono- Ononella Wassey's name and Ononella Otherfellasorum. So, that's quite the uh, honor for the boys. <laughs> Good stuff. All right. I don't know why I'm on the Nick Walenda kick. I told you last week that Nick Walenda had successfully crossed Niagara Falls on his tightrope. It was today in history, in 2013, he walked across the Grand Canyon. I don't even know why I get hooked on that, but I do. And this is a really important one. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the name Alan Turing. He was born 110 years ago today. He's the father of theoretical computer science and artificial intelligence. He was born in England. Mathematician, computer scientist, biologist, code breaker, highly influential. Famously, he played a crucial role in cracking the Enigma code used by the Nazis to send secret messages during the Second World War. It enabled the Allies to win many crucial battles, of course. Professor Jack Copeland has estimated that Turing's work the war, shortened the war in Europe by more than two years, and possibly saved over 14 million lives. Alan Turing born today, 110 years ago. All right, one more quickie today. The FDA approved birth control pills for contraceptive use in the general population, 1960. All right, let's keep going with some prescriptions. This is interesting story. Eastern Health is going to be paying for software that they hope is going to curb the unnecessary prescription of antimicrobial or antibiotics. We lead the league, again, we have the highest rate of outpatient antimicrobial drug use in Canada. It's declined since 2017, but nowhere near where Dr. Peter Daly, an infectious disease physician and medical microbiologist at MUN would like to see it. So, of course, antibiotics are important to treat various ailments, but they can cause liver and kidney damage. If you give the wrong medication, it can make the patient sicker. So, unnecessarily, prescribing all these antibiotics, of course, comes with not only a cost uh, to the treasury, it comes with a cost to humans. You know, the resistance that people have built up to antibiotics is really quite scary. When we see the the bugs and the superbugs that are out there. So they're using this software to be a desktop piece of software to ensure that you have the symptoms and the requirement to get an antibiotic despite all of the training that the doctors have, they are still prescribing antibiotics for things that antibiotics don't even treat. Like someone with a common cold coming home with an antibiotic is ridiculous. So it's going to cost $170,000, we get a freebie for the first year, but $170,000 to replace what you would think would be adequate training and special understanding of how and why and where uh, an antibiotic should be prescribed, but Eastern Health has had to turn to desktop software. Maybe it will also be help to the doctors. When a patient says, I need an antibiotic, and you plug in all the required information into the formula on your desktop, you spin around your screen and say, no, you don't need it. Don't take it from me. Take it from this. But anyway, looks like we have to do that. We're looking forward to speaking with Dr. Janine Hubbard here on the program this morning. We told you about this story yesterday. Eastern Health is reporting a 45% vacancy in psychology positions. They say there's been a mass exodus into the private sector. Burnout, rate of pay, of course, much more profitable in the private sector. And we quoted neuropsychologist Dr. Tanya Lentz yesterday, and this is really a mouthful. She moved away from Eastern Health, said it felt like her work was now becoming unethical because she was leaving people on wait lists for three to four years because I couldn't physically get to them just because of the demand. Then they go on to say that it feels a little demoralizing to be spoken to and treated as you're interchangeable with social workers. And as I said yesterday, social workers do incredibly important work. But the additional years of training for a psychologist just makes it different, and they are not interchangeable professions. So Dr. Hubbard will come on to talk about what the impact is, because it's not just the vacancy positions. There's also some tutelage and mentorship problems with new psychologists entering the field, as far as I understand. So I'm looking forward to speaking with Dr. Hubbard, as we usually do, as we always do, pardon me. Alright, last day of school for students in the K-12 system. Hopefully you have a great summer as you tote home your report cards today. Last day for the teachers is tomorrow. It's been a tricky few years as we're all painfully aware. So if you'd like to talk about how the school year has gone for your son or daughter, let's do exactly that. Also, the concept of learning loss is not fully understood. The Minister of Education, Tom Osborne, says that our high school students, in particular, have felt less learning loss than other parts of the country. I'm not sure what that's based on, necessarily. But there is a two-day learning loss symposium happening today and tomorrow. Various stakeholders, post-secondary institutions, uh, members of the government will be there, to see what might need to be put forward to support high school students as they make the move to university or college. You know full well that there's been some students that have struggled mightily. Maybe on their way to high school had some uh, bumps in the road. But with the fits and starts and some other pandemic pressures, certainly the concept of learning loss might have a long-term implication for the graduates as they move off to post-secondary. But congratulations to all hands in K-12 as you commemorate the last day of school today. All right, let's talk about some prices. Start with some, I guess, good news. For the second time this week, price of fuels are down, all right? This one, a paltry 2.9 cents for gasoline, but it is down, diesel down just over a cent. F- uh, furnace oil and stove oil decreased by less than a cent, and, okay, propi- propane, tenth of a cent. <laughs> a tenth of a cent, okay. So that's the good news. I guess any time the price of anything goes down, that's good news. But then you factor in some of the other issues. Inflation, now Stats Canada tells us that inflation has hit uh, a 40-year high. It's 7.7%, the high since 1983. The impacts we are all feeling, of course we are. What this means for potential uh, hike moves from the Bank of Canada, I don't know. And where this all stops, I don't know. But 7.7% is pretty extraordinary stuff. I mean, there was a fair bit of, well, worry and whatever other if you'd like to poke in when we were talking about 6.8%, but here we are at 7.7%, and another price move that's going to happen is on milk. So there's an organization called the Canadian Dairy Commission, and they oversee Canada's supply management system. There are some arguments as to whether or not that's required. As of September 1st, The price of milk is going up 2.5%. It also went up 8.4% on the 1st of February. So I guess the commission recognizes just how difficult it's been for dairy farm and farmers, period, when you talk about the surge in the cost of things that they need. Feed, energy, and fertilizer. Increases of 22%, 55%, and 45% 45 respectively since August of 2021. Extend that conversation into what it looks like, what it means for Newfoundland and Labrador farmers. You know, when you look at the first census for farms, the number of farms in this province compared to what it is today, it's an unbelievable drop in the numbers. I know the competition with the mega farms must be pretty severe, but the explosion in cost, if we see farms not come out the other side of this, that will be to our collective detriment. So while some people are happy enough to see subsidies and royalty breaks and uh, money's flowing into some big industry including the oil and gas industry, not the same appetite for support for a a Newfoundland and Labrador-based farm, small or medium, producing whatever, root vegetables into meat. But anyway, there's some of the price numbers for your particular update. Someone asked me to follow up on this, and uh, Barry Fordham followed up on on it for me formally with uh, DFO, because the recreational food fishery is going to be popular this year, even just to save some money, right? The concern has long been, where are we with the uh, numbers of fish you can catch? Five per person per day is hopefully people don't abuse it too far, and 15 per boat. But here it is, straight from DFO. OK. You will not be charged if you exceed the boat limit of 15 fish as long as each person has only their daily catch limits of 5 fish. However, it is important to remember that DFO has the ability to change, close this fishery if participants are not adhering to the combined set of regulations and management measures. If 5 in the boat, you can all take 5. So when we constantly hear 5 per person, 15 per boat, if there's more than 3 people fishing, you can all get your 5 and you will not be charged. This comes straight from DFO. I wouldn't be saying it if it was just anecdotal stuff that people, someone told me and I told him and I'm telling you now. So that's straight from DFO if you were wondering how to navigate that particular issue. How are we doing on the telephone there, David? All right, a couple of quickies here. The aquaculture industry. They're saying there is absolutely no truth to the conversation or the rumor that they were directly involved in lobbying the provincial government to institute this cormorant call. They say it's simply no need. They've got other measures on site. They say if you've ever been to a fish farm, you will see that they have other opportunities to deal with problem birds, including cormorants. So they say they had no role. You can take that for what you will. The department backs up the aquaculture industry, saying, no, it wasn't part of it. Even though it kind of felt like it came out of nowhere, this particular cormorant Hunt or the removal of problem birds, and the permits were inst- were uh, distributed starting on the fifteenth of this month. All right, quick one. We've seen some pretty serious collisions on the province's highways in the last couple of days. A couple on Peacekeepers Way. Some real incredible images coming from the highway just outside of Bishop's Falls. Two semis involved in a head-on collision. No word as to the the state or the status of the drivers or any passengers that were on board, but. You know, there's going to be more traffic out there, even though the price of gas is keeping some people home and not taking that Sunday drive or maybe not going to travel across the province in a staycation like they may have in the past. But the stores are just too frequent. So watch your bobber if possible. And this one, for information purposes only, on Wednesday when the province updates their COVID hub. I mean, I hate to say encouraging numbers because they are reporting two additional deaths, COVID-related deaths, bringing the total to 192, our condolences to the families. But we're told that the benchmarks to keep an eye on will be hospitalizations, down, albeit slightly, to 11, three in critical care, which is down from four from last week. So, again, simply for information. And I guess those numbers, when you see drops, and yes, two two additional COVID-related deaths is sad for the families, of course it is. But those are the numbers. All right. We're on Twitter. Horviosim Open Line. Follow us there. Oh, quick! Want to offer my condolences to the family of L. Blackwood Pike. You might know him as Grandpa Pike. He spent 40, 50 years as a traveling salesman, and he uh, has written five books since he retired. I had the opportunity to meet Laurie a couple of times. One time he came into the studio with Beaton and Tulk, former premier Beaton and Tulk. Uh, Grandpa Pike had written his memoirs. He's written several books, one of which he interviewed me for, which I thought was curious and interesting. But our condolences to his family. I saw this as just popped up on Facebook. He wrote his own obituary. And I guess maybe his wife Kathleen had posted it on his behalf. So our condolences to Kathleen and his daughter Lori Shannon Heron and all his friends and family. Okay, uh, said so we're on Twitter, yeah, we're VOCM open line. follow us there. Our email address is com. Let's get a tune going before we come back. Any opportunity to play Canadian songbird Anne Murray, why not? Today in 1979, she was at number one on the adult contemporary chart with Shadows in the Moonlight don't go away welcome back to the program let's begin this morning on line number two say good morning to the president of the association of psychologists newfoundland and labrador that's dr janine hubbard dr hubbard you're on the air
2: good morning patty
1: good morning to you thanks for making time for the show
2: Oh absolutely, thank you for giving us some coverage.
1: So this is really something, I mean this is not something that we were told not to worry about, this is something we were told we should be very worried about and now here it is. So Eastern Health alone is reporting a 45% vacancy in psychology positions. A couple of things mentioned, burnout and rate of pay. Right off the bat, what's the real life implication of this shortage of psychologists at Eastern Health?
2: Uh, Well, a couple of things, and I'm going to clarify. Um, Actually, what we have seen, rate of pay is rated about number six in the list of concerns, and burnout is much lower. What we're finding, at least from a survey we did of our members, was that uh, issues around lack of autonomy, lack of respect, lack of ability to practice to full scope, um, and a lack of understanding from uh, management and government in terms of what is the skill set of psychology and how to use it most effectively um, have been the issues that are impacting things. So yes, what we have found is that uh, psychologists have simply said um, enough is enough Um, and actually Eastern Health has the lowest of the vacancy rates. The other health regions have even higher vacancy rates and many of those are very long standing. But what we found is psychologists are saying look, I'm not being allowed to do my job the way I know I can do it and more importantly the way I know my patients deserve to receive services and that has been the biggest concern Um, so we have a combination of of psychologists not being able to provide the uh, interventions and treatments that they know will be effective and then because of the vacancy rates individuals just not being able to be seen and we know that if you're much like many health conditions uh, the longer you wait to be seen by a specialist the worse your health condition is going to become. And while, um, you know, we tend to minimize in a lot of ways mental health concerns, we know that the longer they go untreated, the more it affects um, uh, your ability to work, your ability to work effectively, it affects your relationships, it affects your maladaptive coping skills, and in some cases it can be just as life-threatening as a uh, cardiac condition left untreated. And that's why we're so concerned and that's why we're speaking out.
1: uh, Dr. Lentz is uh, quoted in particular here and talking about she feels like she's been demeaned because you know the interchangeability between a psychologist and a social worker who's making those decisions?
2: Well, again, that's coming down um, from management, um, and it comes from, in many cases, a lack of understanding. And, again, I think it's really important we emphasize there are essential roles for all team members on a mental health team. Um, Everybody plays a particular role. Everyone has a particular set of training, but they are not the same. They are not interchangeable, and it doesn't mean that people can't do some of the Uh, other tasks but it's not making full use of their scope. I've given you this analogy before, psychologists spend as much time training as do physicians and what is in many cases being asked to happen is let me take you know one of the uh, walk-in clinics here in town. You can put a cardiac surgeon in that clinic and they can staff the clinic is that terribly satisfying for that specialist and or is that the most effective use of their time knowing the waitlist that are waiting for their specialized services and that's what's been happening.
1: So Dr. Lisa Morris the co-author of uh, the Association of Psychology in Newfoundland Labrador talking about stepped care yep. so apparently first introduced in the United Kingdom to me it feels a lot like the collaborative care clinics you'll be assigned the healthcare professional that you require so where are we with stepped care I know was part of the report Uh, based on a survey back in 2019, where is that?
2: Well, and actually the two can um, have some similarities, but actually some real differences. Okay. Um, So first of all, actually back in 2017, we proposed integrating psychologists into the primary care teams within uh, family medicine, for example, as a pilot project, because we know that that's um, an integrated team member where whether it's consultation, whether it's single session, whether it's longer term services, it's including the psychologist right at the front end of health care um, and that's a model that has been used many places Ontario has it in place BC's putting it in place and we're finding that to be incredibly effective especially um, at some preventative measures stepped care itself um, is actually something all psychologists do on an informal basis it's uh, meeting with a client and determining well what is their level of need what is their level of care um, do they need just some uh, information and you know here's some reading suggestions do they need a single session do they uh, need a group do they actually need you know 10 to 12 weekly sessions of interventions up to do they you know need medication do they need hospitalization in theory that's what we all do on a regular basis Um, and it has been formalized a little bit like I say in places like the UK and Australia Um, the difficulty here has been um, the government has put a huge amount of resources into the early intensity services and that's great Um, and none of us are criticizing that things like doorways walk-in clinics um, some of the apps are great for the people for whom that's suitable um, but if you look at things like the fact that, that STEP Care 2.0 was originally rolled out at the University Counseling Center, well, that's a very specialized population. Uh, that's a very literate and motivated and educated group of people. You can't then just take a model design there and transport that into rural Newfoundland um, where they may or may not have you know, the adequate uh, internet. They may um, have very different needs they may be from a very different generation um, so some of it is how it has been implemented um, and then uh, so again great that those services are there but what has not been addressed is the medium and long-term mental health care needs those needs haven't been properly fleshed out and they've taken the people who um, are specialists in that area and again they've been uh, reassigning them or telling them to deliver low. Intensity services uh, without even consulting before purchasing a program, not even consulting the psychologist to say, Hey, does this fit with your clientele? What do you think about this? Can you evaluate the research that came behind it? Because, again, psychologists, we're really well trained in assessing research and program evaluation, um, and we'd love to be able to assist in selecting some of those programs, instead of having them imposed on us and being told you will deliver this program.
1: It gets further complicated when we talk about hiring new psychologists, because yeah. now we understand that one of the two residency programs in the province are on hold, because we don't have enough supervisors to run it. So while we're trying to deal with these vacancy numbers, we're, we're stalling the progress of resident students.
2: We are indeed. And I always like to clarify, because when people hear supervision, they tend to think of, you know, my manager, or my boss. Much like medical training, psychology uh, involves a lot of mentorship and teaching uh, to more junior um, psychologists from more senior psychologists. So we provide that mentorship and uh, teaching at the graduate level and then at the residency level, which is their final year of training. And then even once they've graduated, while they're waiting to uh, finish their licensing exams, we have what's uh, known as provisional registration, and there's a certain amount of supervision that's required in all of those stages. Again, because it's very hands-on, sometimes it's ethical consult, sometimes it's case conceptualization, but it's really higher order uh, supervision that requires experienced psychologists to provide that. And The mass exodus we've had has been in our mid-career and senior career psychologists, the exact people whose expertise and skill set we need to provide that mentorship to the students and residents and uh, new hires. And at a certain point, um, if you don't have those supervisors available, you can't offer training and those new residents, those new provisional hires, they're the next generation of psychology. They're the, they're the ones who are going to continue on in this province and then become the mid and career psychologists. And if we don't have anyone to supervise them, um, then we have both the residency program in jeopardy, and if it continues, then we have the um, doctoral program in jeopardy, and we're just sort of seeing this, you know, this house of dominoes starting to collapse.
1: Oh boy! Um,
2: Indeed, oh boy! So, <laughs> what's why what's so next? Frustrated. What's next? Um. I would ask everyone to reach out to their Member of Parliament if they think that having psychologists in this province is important. If they think that having access to a psychologist, um, and not just because you have the ability to access someone privately, uh, fundamentally we all believe we should have a very robust psychology um, service within all of the public sector. That includes school, that includes health, that includes post-secondary. I urge you reach out to the minister of health reach out to your member of parliament and let them know that it's important because uh at the moment they don't seem to see that there is a value or a role for us in this province
1: and and not to be crass but sometimes the straw that breaks the proverbial camel's back maybe money what's the difference in rate of pay work for eastern health as a psychologist versus a private clinic
2: well, again, it's a little deceptive because um, when you are a public employee, you have things like your paid sick leave, you have your annual leave, you have your pension, you have your health care benefits, um, you know, you have all of your testing supplies and protocols paid for, um, whereas if you're in private, you have the uh, overhead for your office, you have additional insurance. Um, again, you may be needing to pay staff. Uh, so although on paper it looks highly discrepant the reality is yes it's a little bit higher but There are also opportunities that you miss out on. Um, You miss out on working on a multidisciplinary team. You often miss out on the opportunities to do the supervision and the training with the students that we all so enjoy. So yes, if you're simply looking at dollars, it is higher. Um, I would say it's far more qualitatively, what you have in private is respect, you have autonomy, you have flexibility, um, and you have the ability to practice to full scope. As I said, in all of our survey results money was listed as like number six or seven on the list it was far more about job satisfaction and feeling like you were going you had the opportunity to properly provide the assistance to your clients that we've been trained to do
1: appreciate the time this morning dr. Hubbard thank you very much
2: oh Patty, thank you for your ongoing uh, coverage of all these issues it's always so appreciated
1: Uh, my pleasure stay in touch yeah absolutely okay bye bye It's Dr. Janine Hubbard, the president of the Association of Psychologists, NL. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Transport Safety Board, a recent report on a vessel that was lost in southern Labrador. Brian wants to talk about the last day of school. Don't go away.
0: Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show.
1: Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Merv. You're on the air.
0: Hey, Good morning, Patty. Thank
3: you for giving me a few minutes to Talk about the Transport Safety Board report that was released yesterday on the uh, the loss of the Island Lady, and you mentioned it uh, just before you went to break there that it was the uh, small fishing vessel, a twenty-six foot fishing vessel that was lost out of uh, Mary's Harbour uh, last September. And we lost Mark
1: uh, Russell and Joey Jenkins aboard.
3: Yes, indeed, two two very young men of the community and uh, a great loss. When I. Uh, you know, when I talk about these kinds of situations uh, publicly, I always think uh, about the family, you know, and the the trauma that they that they went through and they're still going through, and uh, and I do think about the families uh, today and as they continue to talk about it. I know that uh, Dwight Russell, the father of one of the crew members, um, did talk about it a fair bit yesterday, and and I know that him and his wife Jeanette have uh, put a lot of uh, positive energy. Uh, out of a very bad situation into doing some things on advocacy. And I know that Dwight uh, recently appointed to the uh, the chair of the Labrador Shrimp Company. Um, one of his first moves was to initiate an effort to put uh, the 406 EPIRBS, um station vessels uh, along the coast I think it'll equip somewhere around 75 or so of these vessels a, uh, a great move uh, you know? and
1: he's asking uh, he's also going on to say it should be it should be mandatory and you know the acronyms the EPIRB is emergency position indicating radio beacon yes so it's mandatory beacons okay
3: Yes, mandatory beacon operates on the four oh six uh, frequency, and it's a uh, part of uh, what we call the GMDSs or the Global Maritime and Distress and Safety Systems, and so it's recognized, and, and there are safety designs and systems built around that to receive, you know, these signals within uh, within minutes, sometimes within seconds uh, after they're activated. Very pinpoint accuracy uh, positioning, including the names of, uh, of of people and crew, and particulars on the vessel, and telephone numbers. You know, it, it, it's all there. But, you know, that's that's just uh, one component of, of a very huge problem. This, You know, and I have to take, uh, again, a, a minute to to reiterate uh, the point that, that CNL, uh, myself and Ryan in particular, uh, came forward with uh, the call for an inquiry, a commission of inquiry to investigate and to look and to report on some of the things that uh, – that that can be done there there's so many facets uh, to this uh, uh, particular problem I- including the influence of uh, of, of fish management so, you know the decisions around Fish and vessel safety and size restrictions, for example, we can talk about that forever. It's it's, it's so so complicated and and uh, and certainly leads to you know a, a lot of issues. The, the gaps in search and rescue, and we talk about La We know that some of these huge gaps. There's you know there's no air resources <coughs> station in that area. There's no surface resources uh, with with uh, search and rescue standby posture. Um, you know what's being done about prevention programs. Uh, you know this Transport Safety Board report really profiled their report by saying, emphasis on the word, unregistered. Uh, and, you know, they talked about the unregistered uh, vessels that uh, that were uh, applying their trade, fishing um, vessels that were not registered with, with Transport Canada, as if, you know, that this is the, the, the resolution to all of the issues that we're having out there. And, you know, since the uh, Sierra Ann report, the uh, transport safety report on the Sierra Hand, which was a small vessel lost in in, in the Pesantia Bay with the loss of four people from St. Lawrence, I, I've talked to uh, an endless amount of people. And they make the point to me, Merv, I have been registered for the last 25, the last 30 years. I've been registered with Transport Canada. I've yet to receive a communique, they say, an email on safety features and so on. So, you know, it begs the question, so what? what's the point, uh, Transport Safety Board? What point are, are you making here? I think that the, the points that the Transport Safety Board are making that we should really focus on is the fact that uh, this uh, fishing vessel activity and the issues and the safety issues have been on their watch list, along with only one other uh, priority item. This has been on their watch list since 2010 and they have been tormented and disturbed that there's been no progress in fact the rate of fatalities is still increasing and this uh, transport safety board report that came out yesterday talked about seven other similar incidents to the one that happened in mary's uh, with the loss of of 35 people and that was only in a seven-year period in the Sierra report and they talked about overall forty five people being lost in the fishing industry fishing vessel fatalities uh, in the last uh, in the three years from uh, 2018 to to twenty twenty one so uh, patty it's it 's too high these numbers are are too high it 's the highest of any commercial industry in the world and in fact it 's uh, many commercial industries uh, Uh, would be forced to shut down until they had had the situation solved. I'm not
1: sure what we gleaned from the report. You know, it says no distress signal, uh, no operable distress alerting devices, possibly resulting in the delay to begin the search. So when they can't find the vessel to do any sort of investigation or examination of the craft, what are we supposed to glean from this other than the fact that they didn't have a distress signal and there was no EPIRB aboard and wasn't registered? I'm not sure what registered has to do with the fact that they were lost. So what can anyone take away? From this, other than the fact that we should be talking more about emergency beacons mandatory.
3: Well, yeah, exactly. I think we have to drill down from this. So, you know, I mean, there was uh, this class for report, as they call it. There were six classes of reports under Transport Safety Board, and this one, there's this class of a report. There's no not even the requirement to to produce or reproduce uh, recommendations. So uh well, clearly there's some implicit uh, uh recommendations in this, and that's you know as to properly equipped and so on but you know the question of uh, the questions that are raised is you know why aren 't we making? Some, uh, some significant movement on uh, the courage requirements, of not just uh, the EPERB that we refer to, but immersion suits, uh, you know, life rafts uh, that are hydrostatically uh, equipped uh, for, for quick release. Um, and the list goes on, so it points again to this larger issues of of, of prevention. Some of the things, uh, awareness and prevention, and, and uh, you know w- which we're not doing. And I think we we in, instead of pointing the finger at uh, at, at, at fishers, uh, fish harvesters, and so on, and saying they have a poor safety culture, which uh, Transport Safety Board has had a tendency to do many times, and uh, and Transport Canada as well. Um, let's get back and understand why these prevention measures are not taken. Is it because of, of, of serious cutbacks in, the, in Transport Canada, in order to and, and the inability to effectively carry out the kinds of uh, inspections that's required, the kinds of public awareness that's, that's required, a whole range of things that's under. So I think that's where we had to go. Uh, you know, a Class 4 report on the loss of, 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 of a vessel like this and uh, not much different from the report that was done with the Sierra Hand. Uh, it, it's time to, to get out and do a full-scale commission of inquiry so we can drill down and drill into some of these things and see if we can establish, uh, you know, in a a transparent kind of a way, in an accountable kind of a way, uh, some of the big issues of what is going on and why Transport Canada, for example, uh, is not talking to uh, Department of Fisheries and Oceans in the coordination efforts to get this under control. I mean, there's just one question there. What, what, what's stopping some of the regulatory requirements uh, of the carriage of e EFERBs and other safety equipment? You know, let's look at the search and rescue pieces and why there's serious gaps in certain areas. Uh, The fish management part, the size restrictions, why people have to go out Mm -hmm. in certain weather conditions, all these kinds of things. It It begs for an inquiry. Patty, we just went through the inquiry on ground search and rescue. You know, we, we moved the file forward, uh, you know, uh, light years. And look where we are today as a result of a solid terms of reference and good recommendations of ground search and rescue. That was, that was seriously, seriously overdue, by the way. But, uh, but we did achieve some, some great success. And we weren't even allowed to talk about maritime search and rescue within the scope of that. And there are many, many mm. more problems and many more layers of, of people involved departments, federal, provincial, and so on and so forth, you know, it's time It's time for that inquiry. And I just want to, that is my main point this morning of, of, of raising this issue publicly. And I know that the inquiry is not going to happen overnight, and, and, you know, but uh, somehow we have to get our politicians to move in a way that that inquiry comes to fruition.
1: Yeah, not even a fast rescue craft in Labrador, which is extraordinary. I appreciate the time this morning, Murph. Thank you.
4: Thank you, Patty. Take care. Talk to you later. All
1: right. Bye-bye. Appreciate the patience of both Brian and Corey. They're up after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. All right, let's go. Line number four. Good morning, Corey. You're on the air.
4: Good morning. How are you doing today?
1: Doing grand. How about you?
4: Not too bad. Uh, Patty, I know that uh, a lot of people in the province are having some hard times lately, so I just wanted to call in and tell your audience about a day when uh, we can all forget the stress a little while. Let's do that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So uh, this Saturday at the Bowering Park Amphitheater, uh, there will be a free all-ages concert. Um, There's 15 bands playing. It starts at noon, and it runs till 10 p.m. There are a lot of different styles. There's going to be some rock bands, some punk bands, a couple of heavy metal bands, you know, just uh, a, a little bit of something for everybody.
1: That sounds great. Who's behind this? Because that's no small task, pulling that off.
4: Um, Kyle Crotty and the guys in Castum Cult. so they're just uh, a bunch of young whippersnappers and uh, you know they really put themselves out there and uh, put in a lot of work to really to get this to go ahead with the city of St. John's and uh, of course organizing 15 bands uh, to play is uh, no easy feat for sure.
1: All right I don't know if I'm just being uh, swept up by the uh, gig out at the Admiralty Museum in Mount Pearl is punk making a bit of a resurgence around here?
4: <laughs> it's always been around.
1: It's oh uh, that I'm um, absolutely no. But you know for a while there it was a big part of the scene, like a huge part of the scene. Then for a while maybe not so much, maybe some niche shows. But now I'm hearing more and more punk.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, and uh, one amazing thing too is uh, a Bucket Truck is actually closing out the show so uh, as you may be aware they reunited for a sold out night at Iceberg Alley and uh, they're happy to uh, come play the all Ages show with us as well.
1: Fantastic yeah Matt Wells and Judd and the boys they were huge back in the day so that's really cool that they were able to get the, put the band back together as they say to make an appearance at Iceberg and just incredible they're going to be playing out at your gig out in Bowering Park that's brilliant stuff so give us some details the uh, we know they wear but uh, sometimes we see the first band when bucket truck hits the stage
4: yeah so uh, it's going to be pretty well all day it starts at noon uh, and the boys will be taking the stage 9:30 it should be over around 10 um, so it's it's all day uh, again it's free um, you can uh, look up the event on Facebook uh, it's called the big show at Bowring Park Um My band, Sons of an Eastern Moon, will be playing. Uh, Carnage, Chimp Apparatus, Merlin's Inferno, uh, The Skeets, Vertibreaker, Dark Era, Sentimentipede, Mantra, Tunnel Vision, Last Cigar, uh, you know so many bands and uh, an amazing thing to see as uh, being a little bit of of an older guy in the scene myself is over half of these bands are all in their early 20s or fresh out of high school
1: Wicked. sounds wicked to me just very quick and this is a little bit beside the point but you know it's great that you're able to get all these bands to put off a free show we know that bands with the lack of gigs were really struggling because some bands they do it on the side it's a hobby reason to get together with the boys or the girls but There's also the lost thrill of simply performing. You know, it's one thing to be, go get a take of the gate or what have you, but when you don't have the time on stage, it's not about perfecting your craft necessarily, the point I'm getting at, but there's that thrill of performing, the thrill of getting some immediate feedback from the audience.
4: That's the only reason why we do it. There you go. You know, when uh, when you're taking a couple of thousand dollars on stage to make a hundred dollars, you're not doing it for the money. You're doing it for uh, you're doing it for the crowd, and you're doing it for yourself. So,
1: yeah, you could be in the garage jamming it away, but when you get someone that you look down and they're either banging their head or got the horns up or simply dancing in spots or smiling, whatever it is, that's what makes it all worthwhile for the performers and absolutely for the members of the audience. Uh, good to have you on the show, Corey. Good luck with the gig.
4: Absolutely, thank you very much.
1: My pleasure. Take good care. All right, bye bye. So there you go, there's a big band show. Not Arthur Miller, big band. 15 bands taking the stage out in Bowering Park free of charge. All right, let's take a break. We appreciate Brian hanging around to talk about the last day of school. When we come back, we will speak with Brian, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away.
0: Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break.
1: Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Brian. You're on the
0: air. Good morning,
5: Collie. How are you?
1: Doing fine, thanks. How about you?
5: they launch one last night?
1: They did indeed. 3-2 in overtime, albeit a little bit of controversy if you ask Tampa Bay.
5: Yeah, well, of course, I don't like Tampa Bay. Um, What I want to talk about this morning, today is the last day of school, and it was on your radio this morning, your early news. And uh, I'm just thinking about teachers today, Paddy. And today I'm thinking about the teachers And the poor poor, uh, parents have robbed elementary school in Texas. You know, it's around right now that a lot of the have been completed. Those little children are buried. The teachers are buried. All the usual characters have come and gone. And it's right now, it's going to hit the parents. You know what? My child isn't coming home anymore. The phone calls have stopped phoning. The letters have stopped coming. And I'm not saying things are getting back to normal. They never will. But things are quieting down. And the parents are left, you know, but they you know, just wondering what happened. And it's a terrible situation. Now, I've I've said to you a few times that I, too, was a teacher. I got my education degree from Memorial. And one of the things that were taught to us is that when you're in that classroom, take it seriously. Because according to the laws of the provinces of Canada and the United States and places like that, you're as a teacher, you're taking the parents place. Take it seriously. And you know I think they do. And they do. I took it seriously and whatever I taught to always impressed that Obama. Now in nineteen eighty two of course I left the province, and I went out to Saskatchewan to get a job. And I owed a lot of money, and I said I'd stay a year. Well, yeah, I stayed 31 years in the same school and the same board. I stayed, I stayed such a long time. They started to say it was an institution. My brother, who had a grand sense of humor, said you're not an institution. You should be in an institution. Um, but I learned a lot. And one of my one of my uh, responsibilities is that when we had a death at the school, and unfortunately we did, the kids die of cancer and they die of um, traffic accidents or swimming accidents, I would have to meet with the parents and tell them what we at the school could do to help with the bereaving process, set up a prayer room at the school, uh, get priests and ministers and counselors to be available to our students. And one of the things that, especially mothers would say to me, especially if their kids got killed in a car accident, they'd say, you know, Brian, I wish I had been there with my son and my daughter in the last moment. And I you know it really affected them. And I know that parents at uh, Rob Avalanche probably feel the same thing today. I wish I had been there to hold their hand, to give them a bit of love. Well, you know, there's a silver line in here, and you may say I can't see a silver line to that, but there was. Patty, there was a teacher down at Rob Elementary. You probably know of her. Her name was Mrs. Garcia. She had she had a 24-year teaching career, and when the when the shooter had been uh, killed himself, and when the first responders. And the forensic people got into the classroom. They found Mrs. Garcia. And she was lying on the floor. She was dead. Now, unfortunately, her husband died later that week. And she had her arms around a couple of students. Well, that tells me, Patty, that she was giving those students the love and attention that their parents only wish they could have given. And, of course, uh, the situation was that their parents couldn't be there, but Mrs. Garcia was. And in the years to come, there is a bit of solace to to be felt by those parents to say, say, I wasn't there, but Mrs. Garcia was. Now, this morning, as teachers go on vacation, I want to salute our teachers, but mostly I want to salute our women teachers you got children, Patty. You know, I'm sure they've had women teachers. They bring the love and attention and nurturing to all their classes, be it a primary, or or high school. And high school students need as much, uh, uh, much attention as, it, as the younger ones. So today I want to salute not only teachers, but women teachers. They bring a great honor to our profession. And when I think about Mrs. Garcia, and when I think about the 31 years I spent at St. Mary's High School in Saskatchewan, I'm going to be the first one to say, she's a far better teacher than I ever could have been. And today, I want to salute women teachers. When you're home today, Patty, I know you've said many times that your wife is a principal at the school. I don't know your wife. I don't know the school that she teaches at. When you go home today, give her a hug, and tell on behalf of all your listeners, thank you for
1: what you do. Oh, we're pretty proud of uh, the work she does. I can tell you what, if, if everyone worked as, as hard and as diligently as she does, then we'd have a pretty good system. Uh, and I know lots of really responsible, dedicated teachers in our social circles, but I appreciate your time this morning, Brian. Thanks a lot.
5: Thank you, Patty.
1: Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know if the right word is it's curious or it's interesting or something or other. But when you look at the, uh, he mentioned women teachers, so I'll just pick up on that. The numbers of women teachers in the K to six system versus men—it's certainly way more women, and we're not exactly sure why that is. But it's certainly the case everywhere that my wife has taught, anyway. So I can only speak to what I, my own personal experience on that front. But yeah, look, I think like uh, Her Trent Langdon, say the president of the NLTA that the general public has maybe had a renewed uh, respect for what teachers do, given the fact that how difficult it must have been for parents of school-aged children to have their kids at home and try to help them keep up with their schoolwork and to do their own jobs and to take care of the household duties and what have you. Teachers have an absolute plateful. You know, I do think it's unfortunate then when I hear things like, well, you know, they get the summer off by da, da 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 Man, the amount of work that goes in to being a, a professional, proper, dedicated teacher, it's a little bit more than people realize. You know, and I know, I've, of course, I'm coming from a biased position, being married to an educator, but I see what they do, and it's just unbelievable so it's not only the the difficulty with the composition of the classes and the class sizes and the extracurriculars and the preparation and the marking and the grading and the consoling and dealing with the parents it's a big handful if you ask me let's go ahead and take a break when we go back Diane's in the queue to talk about addiction services don't go away welcome back let's go to line number one Diane you're on the air
6: hi Patty how are
1: you I'm doing okay thank you how are you
6: I can't say the same what's going on Uh, A lot of people, of course, addiction seems to be very prominent in the city and everywhere else. And I happen to have a son who is addicted. Uh, He was doing extremely well. Uh, He was over a year clean. And I thought he was over the hunch, so to speak, over the bump, but he wasn't. I... Trusted him because he seemed to be doing exceptionally well and gave him my bank card because I'm uh, in my 70s and uh, a lot of cardiac issues, and I don't go out, don't have a car anymore. And he went to get a few groceries and he didn't come back. When he did come back, of course. Uh, he came back three or four days later and uh, there was no money left in my account for groceries
1: it's devastating impact on the in, the individual and their family and their friends if you don't mind me asking you don't have to answer this what is your son addicted to
6: okay
1: nasty drug
6: nasty drug and the other one is um, some
1: ketamine, is it? The horse one? Yeah. Uh, what do they call special K? Ketamine, is it? Yeah, ketamine.
6: Ketamine. K- ketamine, I think.
1: Yeah. And so, has he had any help in the past, or how did he get clean for a while? Did he get some addiction supports or go for He's counseling, or what support?
6: happened? No, he, he went to taun- went to counseling, and uh, this happened about 12 or 13 years ago. And uh, he went out to Humblewood.
4: Mhm.
6: And he did really well. And uh, I guess it's like everything else, it all depends on who you who you hang around with. You know, if the old saying goes is uh show me your friends and uh, I'll tell you know I kinda can tell you how who you are.
1: It's certainly a potential predictor of what's going to end up happening to you because peer pressure is real. You know, you'll have someone who is a really well-adjusted, well-intentioned young person all of a sudden does something that is so out of character, and sometimes you can boil it back down to the peer pressure just swept people up. And then when you get into things with addictive properties, it can very quickly get away from you. There's far too many people listening to this show and in the province who are willing to turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to folks so addicted because they'll simply say this, well you made a bad decision. Okay, so let's just say they made a bad decision and it eventually got hooked on one substance or another. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't help them because just listen to this lady. Her bank account was drained based on the addiction for her, that her son suffers from. And this story is all too common. So it's not just the individual. We have to remember that it impacts a variety of people when one person is addicted to whatever it is. So... We just have to do better.
6: You know, years ago, our parents would say, say, but of course drugs and stuff like that wasn't as round like it is prominent now. But they would say, well, if you made your bed, you got to lie in it. Now, that's not necessarily so. A lot of people need help. And just because you did something wrong, does that mean you're a bad person? I don't think so no For uh... help you, you can become productive No, so he's not uh, out selling drugs he's not out doing robberies and uh, in street gangs and hanging around with the, the gangs type thing and guns and all that stuff that's they're still rampant out there mm-hmm. as we know we here on the on the news. And I mean, what we hear on the news is on the tip of the iceberg.
1: So, what's going on with your son today?
6: Today, um, he has started a new job. He's happy, but I'm not because I don't have a cent to pay my bills or get groceries. I have to call food bank, but. He says he's going to pay me back. But in the meantime, I have a cutoff notice for my lights for Wednesday. So come Wednesday, I can't boil out. The and there's nothing he can do until he works and, and, you know, gives me so much money. And I've got to come up with $1,500, and they, and they won't take $500. it has got to be X amount, this amount of money, and then we leave you alone, and you, and you can pay the rest off. I mean, when you were seeing your a fixed income, fifteen hundred dollars was not easy to come by.
1: Of course not. So, what are you going to be able to do? Do you have any options or any alternatives or someone you can turn to, or no. something that I might be able to help with?
6: No, uh, just, just nobody I can turn to. Uh, I do need the fifteen hundred dollars, and it sounds awful to say. If anybody, listeners, got some there, Sunnis, soonies, whatever. that you know to pitch it in to help to keep my electricity on. Because once it's on, and one thing I did find out, which is a good thing, is that um, for Newfoundland Power, you can have that deducted out of your page out of your uh, bank account. Mm-hmm. On a monthly basis, I didn't know that, I know your mortgage could, but I didn't, and of your bank, if you had a car and stuff like that, but I didn't know late, loan did the same thing.
1: Yeah, you can sign up for uh, automatic payment for just about everything these days, and uh, I know some people do it just for the convenience of it all, but that still doesn't help you in the short term.
6: No, and the short I don't have a short term and that's the unfortunate thing, you know, is either I have this or I have no electricity. And it's really quite unfair because when you get your light bill it says we would do everything, you know, to help you, but I mean, to me that's not help. You know, you have to pay this right now or you don't have any lights next week.
1: Is your son still living with you?
6: Uh he had, actually he was out and he was sleeping in, in Boring Park and then he asked could he come back and you know he got a job and I said well this is the last straw you know and uh, you will never ever 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 get my card again because I don't think uh, I, I could uh, ever trust you no matter what you know this, this is the end of the road for me for trust and he just looked at me and he said yes ma'am, I understand you know I've put you down so many times but, you know, he says he promised me this last time. But he'll never get my bank card. And, of course, he'll never know where it is. So I'll keep that well hidden. Well, he'd have to have the PIN number anyway.
1: Um,
6: so, it's not a nice situation.
1: No, of course not. I feel terrible for you. And part of me, of course, also feels terrible for your son. The, the ugly nature of addiction is just so so hard to watch and I mean I don't know either one of you but I know that your story is a story that I've heard many many times maybe not exactly to the point and bank card stuff but what it does to absolutely destroy families is heartbreaking to watch, and it's certainly heartbreaking to listen to your story here this morning, Diane, and if anybody listening thinks that they have the capacity to do something or other to help you out, I know that we can connect you with some food, for instance, Uh, with power bill, that's something that's way out of my realm, I think, but if anybody gets in touch with us and says they'd like to do something to help you, we, of course, we have your number, and we can get back in touch with you, so that much is uh, something I'm absolutely happy to do, Diane. Would you like to tell us anything else or say anything else this morning while we have you
6: yeah I just had something in my mind but I was listening intently to what you said and I thought they would appreciate that food especially like milk and eggs and basics or a bit of chicken but um I was just trying to think oh yes my son was doing extremely well he was doing business management accounting at Kona just about finished I at the time was in a better position and much younger of course and I had a brand new Silver Grand Am car. He used to drive it, had good credit. Uh, He did work at the RNC, had a summer job years ago through uh, opportunities for youth or something like that with disabilities. And uh, he did well, and uh, unfortunately, years later, his grandmother died. And. He went to the funeral, of course. He loved his grandmother, as most of us do. And, lo well and behold, the cousin of the family, who was a well-known addict on the street and in the family, and everybody vanished, was there. And my son, being a softy, and the other fellow being... Oh, uh, what's the word? Conniving and see Scott see my son with driving a car and credit card. So you know, when they closed for supper and then came back to come back seven o'clock uh, for, at the funeral, um, the cousin said to my son, "Let's go let's go to jungle gyms have a game pool." You know he, Scott said, "That's all right, I got a carriage and a car. so off they went. And of course, the cousin looked at my son as cash register. It was ta-ching in his mind. Easy prey. And My son didn't have uh, only deaf friends. And until his cousin knew how to play him, right? And that was the end of my son, the beginning and the end. He took him down a slippery, long road. The other, the cousin is passing. He was murdered. You
1: probably know the incident. I'm starting to think I'm connecting some dots here. Yeah, Diane. Uh, in an effort, certainly, to try to get you some food in the cupboard or in the fridge, I'm going to put you on hold. You're going to speak with David Williams. He's going to give you a number that I want you to call. And get some emergency support for food. And anything else that comes across our way that we know will be of help to you, we'll get back to you personally and see what we can figure out. But I'm going to put you on hold now. Speak with David, okay?
6: Okay, thank you so much, Patty. Have a great day.
1: You too, Diane. Take care. Okay, Diane's on hold. We'll get her sorted out with some food. And uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away.
0: Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to IrishNL at VOCM.com or submit them online at VOCM.com.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two, uh, two and say good morning to the PC member from Fairland. That's Loyola O'Driscoll. Good morning, Loyola, here on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Not too bad, thank you. How about you? I would But,
7: but uh, Patty, and uh, first of all, I'll start off on to uh, offer my condolences to the Hartree family in Portugal Coast South that uh, suffered a tragedy the weekend, and uh, my thoughts and prayers go out to the family.
1: Yeah, that was the ma- the man who was missing from uh, Riverhead, uh, Conception Bay North, and was found just off Whitless Bay. Yeah, terrible. No, Portugal. No, Portugal. Oh, Port- oh Port- Coast Coast County. County. That's what yeah, I meant to say.
7: Portugal oh, Coast. I don't even yeah.
1: know what I said. What did I say? Riverhead?
7: <laughs> Riverhead. Okay, yeah, no, sorry. No, no issue here. No, no issue. Uh, Paddy, i just calling on the doctor issue in the Trapassi, in the Trapassi area, I'm going to say. I mean, people keep saying Trapassi, but it's the whole region and the area that that's affected by the doctor situation. We've had a couple of doctors up there the last three years that have been working diligently uh, in. the area. You know, they've gone up a couple of days a week, uh, taking alternating turns, uh, you know, going to the community to serve the community, and uh, one is retiring, and the other one is there, and, uh, you know, they haven't, uh, they they came up with Position that uh, that's available, and they never offered her the job when it was there. Now, I understand that, you know, there's a competition, but in rural areas, we have such a job to keep the doctors in the area, that I don't know why they just didn't go and offer her the job and, and, you know, and take care of it and, and take care of the situation. But uh, we seem to be in a, you know, in an area now that, uh, you know, it's sort of in turmoil again.
1: I'm not sure I 100% understand the Trapassi situation. Uh, the mayor called the other day talking about the, the, same, the same doctor. So my understanding is, and I could be wrong here, is that vacancies require a job to be posted as opposed to rolling over contracts. Is that accurate or no?
7: I would say yes, it got to be posted. I, I I could see that, but you know, when you're in a rural area, I, I don't see how they just don't sit down with this doctor or the doctors and and figure out some sort of compensator to keep the doctor in the area. There just doesn't seem to be any. You know, they're not just they're just not making it happen. You know, and I and I can see not. You know, you can't give away the world. I understand that, but there got to be some part of negotiation that somebody's looking to keep a doctor in. Your head. And uh, they just don't seem to be on the same page to get this done. You know, we're here uh, here in the House of Assembly, you know, they're trying to recruit doctors. We have a doctor here. How can we not keep this doctor in the and solve the problem? And it just doesn't seem to, they want to make it happen to me.
1: You know, again, I'm, I say some of these things a lot, but the issues are very similar. Is... There's been a long-standing traditional way in which the province hires and utilizes doctors, whether it be in their own privately operated clinic or hospital privileges, or working for the health authority directly, whatever it is. But if things are changing so dramatically, and the issue I mean in the private sector outside of healthcare employers are having to be more and more creative and more and more flexible in an effort to keep people because people are in demand I mean they simply are depending on your industry now but people have options so if flexibility and compromise is going to be part and parcel with retaining or recording a doctor we're gonna to have to look at it I think the only problem potentially with that is we can't have it become a free-for-all where we're being told exactly what I'm willing to do and what I'm not willing to do, hours of operation, whether I take on any privileges at the hospital or I, I refuse to see someone on the weekend, even if I'm on call. You know, we have to be careful. But at the same point, we have to have pragmatic flexibility associated with some of these things, whether it be Dr. AR on Bell Island, whether it be this doctor on Trapassi, whether it be the doctor that they've lost on Fogo Island, whatever it is, because it's not always about money. Even though B.C., there's an interesting story about how they're incentivizing family doctors in that province where they have about a million people without a family doctor Dr. Megan Hayes has one of the toughest jobs in the province and I'd love I know we would never get to speak to the senior bureaucrats but I'd love to have her on the show I also think it'd be an excellent idea if she briefed the entirety of the House of Assembly to give folks a better understanding because sometimes we also have to be careful to not simply play politics with healthcare because and I'm not suggesting you're doing that today because I don't think that gets us anywhere so if people had an understanding from Dr. Hayes About her thought process, here's how we're going to deal with this part of the province. Here's what I think is mandatory for that part of the province, just so we can all be on the same page, so that we can all be pulling the rope in the same direction.
7: You know, I couldn't agree more, Patty. And, you know, I, I agree with you. Can't, you know, you can't give away the house to just to, you know, to make negotiations happen. But, you know, we have the... They came up and spoke. Eastern Hill came up and spoke with the town of Trapassy and the surrounding towns. It's not just it's surrounding sure. towns. And, uh, you know, they had a hub-and-spoke model and they were agreed to what they were going to do and Trapassi would be a, a spoke in that whole hub area. And, you know, with the doctor in the area now, they're, they're trying to base her and do virtual care out of Holyrood. She could do virtual care for from home, But they're making her go to Holyrood, you know, so this kind of stuff is where the negotiations, it just doesn't seem like it's happening. And, you know, I've uh, made a call to uh, Dr. Haggy's office, to the minister's office, and I text him, I haven't received a reply. Yet, but I'm hoping that we'll be able to get down, sit down with the talents and see what we can do to help make this problem, but, you know, solve the issue. Uh, you know, Last year uh, they took the ambulance out of Trappesi. Same example. I don't know how much more this uh, area can take in regards to been taken away from. And you know, and it's a worry. It's a stress on the people. Along with the cost of living, this was along with having to drive to St John's for 200 kilometers. They take an ambulance, put it in Cape Royal. Uh, It just, just taking so much of a beating here. It's unbelievable that you know that the area is just. They're just picking on the area. To me, it just doesn't seem like they're getting any breaks in the area. And it's just full on the people. I got to tell. It's very stressful. I get a lot of calls out. So, you know, they're not, it's not political in any way, shape, or form. Not for me anyway, that's for sure.
1: I appreciate the time this morning, Loyola. Anything else before we say goodbye?
7: No, thank you so much, Petty. I do appreciate your time.
1: Take care. Bye-bye. All right, thanks. That's Loyola O'Driscoll. He's the PC member for Fairland. All right, let's go to line number three. And thankfully, the pilgrimage to Gallipoli to dedicate the seventh caribou is going ahead. Join us on line number three is Major Michael Pretty. Good morning, Major. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing today? Babe? Not too bad. Thanks. How about yourself? Good. I actually
8: have some good news for Trapassi. Um, And the winner knows. We had a an essay contest uh, with the high schools in uh, in the province, and we got uh, twenty five different schools submitted essays. And Kaylee Goodyear from Delamar's School in Trapassi, thirteen year old, grade seven, is the winner of the essay contest. And we're taking her, and I think her mother. To Glibly with us, all expenses paid by us.
1: That's incredible.
8: Yeah, it's uh, when I talked to her, I just, oh my god, oh my god. So it's, uh it's it, that's really cool that we could we could do
1: that. How so old is I'm she by chance?
8: Do you happen to know? She's thirteen. Thirteen years old.
1: <laughs> what an experience yeah. that she has coming. So, what was her essay about? Or give us a, a sense uh, of what she wrote
8: it was um so because we had a wide variety from grade 7 to grade 12 was anybody who submitted an essay um their name went into a, a hat and we just drew the name uh her essay was a general overview of of the newfoundland experience in gallipoli uh and then she came out with uh, at the end of her essay which what i really liked there were five things you didn't know about gallipoli right uh Most people, uh, most people, most of the injuries were from, uh, were from disease. Um, So many people had died from Newfoundland. Um, I'm trying to remember now. And then the Newfoundlanders were the last to leave because we're the ones, the last people to leave on the withdrawal. And the the biggest success of the whole event was withdrawing out of the withdrawal of the Gallipoli.
1: And she's 13 years old. That's tremendous.
8: Uh, another one was submitted by uh, an 18-year-old father We like, talked about the beast of Gallipoli. And it was all about malaria and diseases the soldiers space, and how that was such
1: a, a
8: horrendous experience.
0: Yeah, so it was pretty cool. Pretty yeah,
1: cool. we shortchange our youth, uh, unfortunately, far too often that they don't know our history, they don't know our position, how we got here, why we're here. When, in fact, more often than not, they do. <laughs>
8: they do. You it know, we don't there, choose to have you the yourself, conversation.
1: Right? Pardon me? Sorry. Yeah.
8: They have a keen interest in
1: it, so. Well, uh, good news for, I think you said her name is Kelly Goodyear, and her mother are yep. going to have a trip of a lifetime to Gallipoli to see the commemoration, yep. or the dedication, pardon me, of the 7th Caribou. Great stuff. Anything else on that yep. front this morning, Major?
8: Well, we, uh, we, we do have uh, a raffle ticket uh, sale still ongoing that draws July 1st and they can they can buy tickets by simply sending uh, an email to trail at nl.rogers.com put their cell phone number and their name and we'll fill out their tickets and sell it to send it to them or we have a booth in the avalon mall saturday sunday and monday and we're hoping to sell enough of these tickets to pay, help pay for the trip that we just gave kaylee and and our mom i think and two other people so this this tickets one for five or three for ten is another all-inclusive trip for two to come along with us on the on the pilgrimage.
1: Wonderful and just so people know the tickets are one for five or three for ten uh, yep. in this particular raffle and for, you know, we hear you say we so uh, uh, Major Pretty is the president of the Trail of the Caribou Research Group that's who's putting this all together brilliant stuff and I know there's mention in the emails of trying to do something on the first of July here with us.
8: Yes, we, w- we want to do the actual draw at, on VOCM on July 1st. I'll
1: tell you what I'm going to do. I'll find out who's going to be here, say, for instance, working in the newsroom, and see if we can help you uh, connect the both of you to get it done. I won't be here. I would have normally would be happy to help, but I will not be here that day. So I will see who I can connect with you. Uh, Major, stay tuned. You're going to get an email from someone in the newsroom. I'm not sure who's going to be here, who's scheduled to be on, on site that day, but I'll try and figure it out for you.
8: Yeah, that would be great. And if anybody has any questions about it, they can just call my cell number. It's
1: 727-4674. Good to have you on this morning, Major. Right. Thank you for your time and your support. My pleasure. Take good care of yourself. All right. Cheers. Bye-bye. Well, there you go. You write an essay. Your name gets drawn from a hat. Off to Gallipoli for the dedication of the seventh caribou amazing. Let's take a break. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? If you're in the St. John's Metro Region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air to talk about whatever's on your mind. doesn't matter if I brought it up or another caller has mentioned it. If you want to change the topic and bring your perspective to the show, we welcome it. If you're in the St. John's Metro Region, 273-5211 or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Welcome back. Uh, Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Diane. You're on the air.
9: I was calling about the MDs. The first one, I've gone through six and eight years. The first one, my car went, and he was on the other side of town. There was no bus shelter, and it was too cold for me to wait for the buses, so I had to change doctors. Every doctor after that moved from here in that short period of time. So it's not the doctors. It's not the money. It's the management. Anywhere you have... A heavy turnover. There is bad management. And I was listening to, I think Loyola Sullivan was his name, the politician.
1: Loyola O'Driscoll, yeah.
9: O'Driscoll, sorry. I talk about capacity. That they had two or three doctors willing to go there. Why doesn't whoever's in charge let the doctors figure out what way they want to work their schedule? It seems uh. to me the doctors here are under thumbs all the time. They're all stressed out.
1: Well, it depends on your situation, right? Because it's one thing to be working at the hospital or directly for the uh, regional health authority or in your own private clinic. So far too often, some of the family doctors that we seem to be losing are from their own private clinics. So I don't know how under thumb they feel... But that's an important facet of what's going on here, is this should be mandatory between the doctor and the government, or the, the health authority itself, to interview every single doctor and every single discipline to find out why they're leaving. Well, yes. Yeah. But we don't, necessarily. They,
9: they, they do know why they're leaving. They just don't want to give in. They've had the upper hand here for the last 500 years, and they're keeping it. You take that doctor over on Belle Island, who likes it over there, who wants to work Monday to Friday. Do you mean to tell me they can take some doctor that's waiting to get his last paper to do the weekends over there? Or a nurse practitioner who's fully qualified, a nurse practitioner would know a person who's having a heart attack and send them over here? I mean, it's ludicrous.
1: not every situation is created uh, the same or created equal for why one doctor is staying or going. I'm a little bit confused with the Bell Island issue and I've said this many times is that you know some flexibility to ensure that a doctor is able to stay who wants to stay whether it be Trapassi or Bell Island or elsewhere we should be able to try to figure that out now when it comes to a job being uh, a job needs to be posted then I'm gonna check with the uh, the authority itself to see so if the person is on contract but their contract is up, whatever that means, is it possible we simply roll it over without competition or is it mandatory for them to post the job to see that one doctor may indeed be interested in that job in and then have a competition for it? I don't know, but I'm going to figure that out.
9: I wish someone would figure it out for <laughs> everyone on the island. And now I got to go looking for an MD. If there's anybody listening getting my number, <laughs> if their doctor is taking a, a patient. Where are you? Centre city.
1: In the centre of this city. Have you tried to get on the roster of one of these new clinics?
9: Oh, no, but I will be. I only found out yesterday that my doctor is moving to Ontario. I see. But I think all these doctors that are moving, I can understand if it's family that they're moving to, but if they're just moving because of here, they're... Doctors in the U.S. and all across Canada who would come here and not leave for 40 years. Maybe we have a good lifestyle here. Now we don't have all the operas and the cinema jigs, but you can save them up and go on vacation like anybody else. I, I think with that's all, it's an interesting point. But all the new Flanders saving up to come home
1: sure but I mean there's a draw to come home versus to come somewhere that is completely foreign to you but you know you made an interesting point there is the whole bit about whether it be amenities or an opportunity for your partner and your children and whatever else and the rate of pay and the level of taxation and the price of gas and interestingly you say save up to go see the opera in New York City or whatever I guarantee you If I'm a doctor and I'm being wooed to come to this province, (laughs) I'm going to look at everything, right? Or Like you would, if people, you're in demand, they can pick and choose wherever they want to work in this country. That's right. And if I look at something and say, you know, how expensive is it for me to travel back to uh, Calgary to visit my family? And then I punch it into the Air Canada website and go, what? And then I look at how frequently or infrequently some of these things are. I guarantee you there's going to be some doctors that that would be the decision as to why, Uh, maybe not. Because it is... But
9: that's another perk they can throw in the pot.
1: Uh, I suppose. And is it all money? Another
9: Mm -hmm. thing, it's all relative. They leave here, they're going to pay two or three times the price for a house. If they have children who are involved in things after school, as any child I know of is, and they're two different places, they're going to spend half their day in a car.
1: You're right. Uh, that's you're 100 percent right. They look at a variety awesome. of things, sure. So what I can get for a half a million dollars a, as a home here in town or somewhere else in a smaller community, compare that to what you can get in the booming metropolises of Vancouver or Toronto or Calgary. There's not even in the same ballpark. That's right. Yeah, you're and right. There's a lot of considerations.
9: Let the doctors have their say and their way sometimes
1: yeah it's quickly arriving at that point anyway uh, would you like to say anything else this morning Diane
9: no that's it I got all out of my system
1: well, I'm glad to hear it
9: <laughs> okay all bye right. bye
1: take care bye bye uh, will I not try to squeeze another call in for the news Dave okay so if it's about money and for some doctors of course it will be you know if they're looking at their opportunities and the rate of pay associated with working here or there for some doctors that might be the only consideration so we'll see how it works in BC. I've mentioned this a couple of times, but they're trying to figure out how they can deal with the one million British, Col- British Columbians that don't have a family doctor. And they're leaning on the money bit. And of course, there's a big difference in living in BC versus living here, for a variety of reasons. But here's what they're doing. Uh, the new residents, that means doctor residents, they're gonna get a $25,000 signing bonus as well as they're going to phase medical training debt forgiveness plan up to 50 grand in the first year up to 20,000 in the medical training debt forgiveness for each year up until year five that's a pretty big deal in addition to that for the new full-time contract residents they're going to be in year one paid $295,000 plus in year one the big deal there is that would have been the pay for year two so that's a long way twenty five thousand dollar signing bonus debt forgiveness which of course is extremely attractive when you come out of med school it's quite likely that you've got a pretty heavy debt load so add all those things together that's interesting there's about 175 new family practice resident graduates being offered these types of contracts right now in in british columbia they have to sign by september so it's not just this big floating whenever you get around to it, please consider bc they put a time frame on it, right? By September, and you can avail of all of these attractive and very lucrative contract options and debt forgiveness, so I don't know what we do here. But again, and it just popped in my mind when we were talking to Loyola Odriscoll Driscoll, in an effort for everyone to know, especially the elected officials, and boy, it'd be so great to be able to get around this program, we'll try. And again, we very seldom have any luck trying to get a deputy minister or the like on the program, but even just to give a briefing to all 40 members of the House of Assembly. Maybe we'll put some additional information in people's minds as to actually how we're doing what we're doing. And then they might be able to bring their ideas back to their own voting district. Because I know Dr. Hagee got dragged pretty hard when he said things like, I don't know if it was a welcoming basket or whatever it is that people uh, jumped on him for, but the communities are going to play a role here like they did on bell island like they're attempting on fogo island so the communities will play a role in trying to attract and to keep a doctor let's take a break for the newscast when we come back we're speaking with you don't go away
10: you're busy
0: but you'll never be uninformed get up to date on the way home the drive on your vocm
1: welcome back uh let's go to line number two margaret you're on the
0: air
11: oh is that me that would be you (laughs) okay Um, Well, I told your um, operator that um, I'm in Maine right now, but normally I live outside San Antonio, Texas. Uh, I am a Canadian citizen, and I'm also a United States citizen. Okay. So I feel like I can criticize both and retreat beyond the border if somebody gets mad. But um, it's very interesting, your talk this morning about the physicians – and i've learned i've learned a lot um but my my conclusion is bureaucracy uh yes there's money yes there are physicians there are great medical schools in canada eastern canada is what i'm familiar with born in new brunswick but I lived in St. John's, and Saint Newfoundland has the softest spot in my heart in the world. I went to Bishop's College and graduated from there. I went to Bishop Spencer when it was still functioning, Um, and I know a lot. I lived on Elizabeth Avenue across from the university, so I know a little bit about St. John's and Newfoundland, but I think the bureaucracy is what sticks out the most, You've got good schools, good people, phenomenal place to live. Although I have to say, somebody who said you have to spend your day driving uh, is would be a, a place, a, a thing that a physician wouldn't be jumping on, but... No, I think her point there
1: was, for instance, if I wanted to live in uh, Ontario, practice in Toronto, but live outside the city and have that commute, so we we have very little commutes around here. Some people do a long-distance commute, but if you live and work in St. John's, you have a minor commute compared to some other major cities and surrounding areas. I think that was the point she was
11: making. But but what if they're trying to find a a physician for St. Anthony, for instance, or... I mean you have to go out to the outports, don't you, to do treat people or do they have to manage to come to you depending on where you set up your practice?
1: I guess it depends on where the doctor lives.
11: Yeah. Well, um I do watch uh the Yukon vet and she's traveling all the time. She's on the road, you know, five hundred miles a day is nothing. But I think that would be not a draw. But what what's the what how does Newfoundland compare with Alberta, where the money is. Because I know that the eastern provinces are the poor ones. I mean, coming from New Brunswick, it's just not the metropolis of money that uh, the rest of Canada is. How does how does Newfoundland and the physician situation compare with Alberta?
1: You meaning access to a doctor?
11: Access to a doctor? Um, I don't know. Um, any anything attracting doctors I just heard about the the uh, attraction they're doing in British Columbia I just heard that on you were talking about that what a what a great deal that is but who's in charge of that and being a now that I'm a feisty American I don't believe in the government running everything and having all the power you know, oh, yes, we can do that. Yeah, we can give you extra money for med school or pay for it or give you travel. And ch- But who's in charge of that?
1: I'm not sure what that the means. Government.
11: When, they, when they say uh, we're not going to do that, then that's it. Uh, so, to me, it just um, sounds like. You know, a- I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what my point is, except that I just wanted to get in on the discussion and I'm more than willing to. Uh, to take somebody's opinion and uh, and and listen to it, as opposed to people who have their minds made up about anything. I do know this. There's a shortage of physicians in Newfoundland. There's a shortage of. Uh, there are, I think, 10,000 people in Fredericton alone with no uh, PCM. That's absolutely outrageous. I have a friend who is a Newfoundlander. Uh, the name, the last name will, will uh, ring a bell with you, Bowring. and she had to wait two years to get her heart problem fixed to get them get her into the hospital and get it done. Uh, people wait two years for a hip replacement. Mine was done in a week. Where? So but uh, well, I, I have to explain that. My husband was the United States military, so I have U.S. military medicine, and it's instantaneous, and, uh, you know, it's it's not a problem. I am on uh, uh, anti-cancer drugs, $5,000 a month. Not a problem. So there's a... See, I'm talking from a huge different, and I know you can't compare military medicine to private or whatever you want to gov- go. Well, military medicine is government. I was
1: going so, to say, <laughs> you don't want the government controlling everything, but your medical coverage is coming directly from the government.
11: Y- yes, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. But somewhere there's a gap in there, and I'm not sure. I'm very lucky. Do not get me wrong. I'm extremely lucky. My disease is practically gone. They can't even find it anymore. So, you know, they've done me—they've done me well. But I'm just thinking—I don't know. I sometimes compare the Canadian way of thinking with the with the War of Independence. You know, there were the ones who wanted to stay and fight, and then there were the Empire loyalists who said. We don't want to fight. We want peace. We'll take the British government. We'll take taxes. We just want to be left. alone. We just want to we just want peace. And 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 if the government says tax me out beyond whatever, I'm 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 OK with that. And and it's just uh, it, I don't know. I think Americans are much more feisty than Canadians. I'm sorry. I, I think so. Anyway, it may be. uh, Well, I.
1: Boy, if I was speaking with someone who was a born and bred Texan, I don't think I'd have much of a problem saying that some of the feistiness is based in some part and partially based in nonsense, you know, to be honest. Uh, The feisty Americans, I think the the political discourse, the societal discord in the United States is certainly nothing that I'd like to see come to this country to the extent and the severity that it is
11: it's above and beyond you're absolutely right i can't agree with you more but i will say this if you are one of the uh there is another caravan on its way through mexico to texas and arizona those people when they arrive they get sick yes they don't have a private family physician but they can go to the emergency room and they are treated, whether it's a big emergency or not. Aren't, these, aren't, aren't these
1: caravans just straight-up boogeyman politics? No, no. Well, no, so, I mean, I wh- what's amazing to me is all these big caravans, until there's actually an opportunity to see how many people have entered the country, they just miraculously go away. Uh, and it's always curious the timing politically of declaring the caravan is on its way with something that they'd like to uh, maybe dissuade you from looking at one other uh, issue or another. You know, and I mean, I don't think there's any coincidence that with the January 6th hearings, all of a sudden there's a caravan on its way. I mean, the fact of the matter is more people are being arrested at the border than ever before and apparently I'm led to believe that that's a failure in the system versus people actually doing their job I'm having a hard time squaring yeah. that circle
11: well here's here's what's happening they uh, they are uh, conglomerated and put on buses and taken to some uh, rural areas they're going to the big cities our governor in Texas said all right you're going to, you're not going to close the border. You're going to have um, United States is open, open, open. Uh, then they can all go to Washington D.C. But that's actually not true, though either, right? And deal with them. Well, Governor Abbott has been doing it, but you know, it, it's it's a matter of do you believe that or not?
1: I don't. And plus, is, thing, as far as I understand, that's uh, he's he doesn't have any authority to do anything of the sort.
11: Well, he's shipping them to Washington D.C. I I do know I do know that, but even if he's not the the uh, uh, okay, just a minute, just lost my train of thought. The um, most of them coming, most of them coming, are young men with backpacks and cell phones. So when I heard that, oh my goodness, we're getting a whole bunch of uh, refugees from the Ukraine, and I'm thinking, oh well, now wait a minute refugees from ukraine they have seven or eight universities in that country before it was destroyed and these people are educated men are not allowed to leave the ukraine so the true refugees are the women and children which is what i consider a true refugee
1: what, what true does what does one have to do with the other i'm sorry
11: well what does one have well would you like hordes of of, of males without families coming and with uh, I, what can i what can i say i
9: mean there's just
1: but don't we nudge up against falling for some of the political uh, hyperbole and rhetoric when you know it's MSN it's MS13 i mean haven't we fallen prey to being fearful and to demonize people i mean someone who might be running for the very life from el salvador meaning no one any, no one any uh, ill or harm and might end up being a productive member of society but all of a sudden because They're coming from that part of the world that they're all MS-13 and stuff like that. Aren't we falling for stuff which is just so exaggerated that it's not helpful at all? Because what ends up happening is people are demonized, all of them. All people of color, all of a sudden, they're demonized.
11: Right. You're right. And you know what will tell the tale in a couple of years when um, when there have been a a plethora of single males that— That are are, uh, dependent on the government, you know, situation or dole out or whatever you want to call it that are uh, um, mostly participating in the crime, then we'll find out, you know, because you're right. I mean, there are always people who want a better life. You know, maybe these guys are uh, wanting to come and find a job and help their mother, who is in dire straits in El Salvador. You know you don't you don't know everything but you know i do, I do live down there i i do know that they're kind of, and i'm not affected personally i will say that some nights i kind of quake in my bed thinking oh my gosh our 50 illegals going to come and knock on my door and come and kill me but that's just not the case and actually san, san, san antonio is is you know no worse for crime than any other city in the United States or anywhere else. So, I can't say if it's affected me, but I was so I so into your conversation about physicians in Newfoundland, and I just say, good God, tell the government to pay them, you know, pay them, and they'll come. I think that's that's my thing, and, and the reason they're maybe not being paid top salaries and benefits is because the government's in charge of what they want
1: them to have. The government's in charge of what they want them to have in every province in this country, right? That's the competitive nature of it, and I don't think anyone has the solution because I don't think there's the absence of a doctor shortage in any single province in this country, which is a devastating mouthful to say. Very quickly, I'm just going to give you some numbers before we have to say goodbye. You mentioned uh, New Brunswick. New Brunswick's population has actually cleared 800,000. They've had huge swaths of people moving from Ontario. Uh, Immigration last year in New Brunswick over 6,500 so that's you know it's the first time in history I believe that the population's cleared 800,000 so people are moving to New Brunswick.
11: Well good well my brother lives there so he I kind of get the you know I kind of get a line in on and that and and let me tell you he has had the best medical care that anybody anywhere could have England, U.S., Canada you know he went over to uh, Europe he got COVID he came back He's got some uh, colon issues. They took him right in when he got back to Fredericton. He's under care. He's, it's been it's, I, no complaints, no, no problem at all. But before we go, I want to find out if you could put me back with your um, operator. And I would like to help Diane.
1: Okay, I'll do exactly that, Margaret. I appreciate your time this morning, and thanks for the kindness.
11: Well, well, thank, you. thank you. And I listen to the it's, look. It's like deja vu for me. I mean, I lived in Newfoundland. I just have the dearest memories of Saint Saint John's and and all, all all of that and Bishop's College and and Spencer and oh anyway, wonderful wonderful stuff. Okay, well, I'd be glad to help her out. Somehow, I'd like to send her. Uh, a check or or something. Okay. To get I'll, s-
1: her over- I'll put you on hold and you'll speak with David.
11: Okay. Thanks, Great. Margaret. Thank you.
1: Take care. Bye bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. John, you're on the air.
10: Morning Haddie, how are you doing day? Great, you. Great. Not that, not that buddy I'm just uh, I was kind well, of I saw the game last night I was wondering what John Cooper was talking about after the game and I watched the highlights and realised nah if, if, he's, if he's complaining about too many men then uh, then then, my, then why wouldn't Jared Bednar complain after the first goal that uh, Tampa scored when uh, Paul Comper's nest is over in the corner and he's trying to stop a puck with his bare face
1: Anyway. Well, the rule there, though, is pretty clear, as a matter of fact. Like, if the, if his helmet comes off in full and the puck's in the corner, then they blow it down immediately. If there's an immediate scoring chance, they don't blow it down, as strange as that may be, because you're basically asking for someone to get a puck in the face.
10: Yeah, exactly, right, yeah, yeah. So, so know, and uh, so I just more or less figured out just... Uh, Cooper's way of trying to rally the troops, right? Because uh, uh, you know they're attempting to do what's never been done in uh, modern NHL history, and that's caught and that's you know, win three in a row. And uh, they uh, they definitely get, they got a team to do it, but I think. Uh Colorado, has got a lot of firepower, and I gotta say, it's fun watching uh, McCarr and uh, McCarr and McKinnon, and uh, even Young new hook play. And they're fun to watch, and that's coming from an Oilers fan. They <laughs> they destroyed us, but anyway, that wasn't the reason I called. Uh, tomorrow marks the 120th day of the uh, Ukrainian invasion of uh, the Ukrainian invasion by Russia, and, uh, I, and I know, like you know, there's a lot going on in the province. Everyone's having a hard time, but I but I just find it's uh, it's not getting, uh, not getting talked about. Uh, or, or getting talked about enough, and uh, and I know everybody in the province. A lot of people have, uh, you know, my God, people have you know bought houses for them. People have uh, rented out their houses for them. You know, we've we've done what we can for refugees, but uh, but but people can't forget that Russia uh, Russia's devastating that country right now, and uh, we just can't uh, can't forget about that. That's all
1: yeah i don't think people have forgotten about it i'm painfully aware of what's going on and i've admitted many times that i've tried to limit my intake because there's an awful lot happening here and in this seat you know sometimes it feels like i'm drinking from a fire hose so i kind of pick my spots where i would need a bit more of an update on the information that's happening in a variety of sectors including that devastating words you rightfully point out
10: yeah, no, that's fair. Uh, I, I, can, I can totally understand your situation. I just, uh, I just want to, you know, uh, remind people, you know, like as bad as we might think we got it here, uh, uh, you know, other people got it a lot worse you know, than us. all. but uh, yeah, no, that's. Uh, I, just, I just want to call in uh, and uh, pass that along. But uh, and uh, and uh, uh, wish you a good day and all the best.
1: I appreciate the time. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Take care, John. Uh, wrong clicker. All right, you know, just some bare numbers. There's at least 15 million Ukrainians have been displaced. There's over 400 missing. There's at least 48,000 people have been killed. So obviously there's some unbelievable things happening in Ukraine. And like some of the cities that have been devastated, you know, flattened to Mariupol and the like, the hundreds of billions of dollars in damages and the time it's going to take for uh, the country to recover, even just bricks and mortar going to be absolutely mind-boggling. All right, checking on the Twitter feed. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is VOCM.com. When we come back, we're going to talk agriculture with Nathan Gidge. He's the owner-operator of Kingfisher Farm. That's out in Gambo South. Don't go away. Every
0: Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The cabin party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. <clears throat>
1: Pardon me. Let's go to line number three. Second wants to the owner, operator, Kingfisher Farms out in Gambo South. That's Nathan Gidge. Good morning, Nathan. You're on the air. Good day, Mr. Daly. Thank you for having me. Happy to have you on the show, sir. So, I have indeed seen an email volley about one of the programs you and members of your group are working towards Farmers for Climate Solutions. Just for context, agriculture is responsible for about 12% of Canada's greenhouse gas emissions when compared to uh, the fossil fuel sector, 27%, transport sector, 24%. What are you working on? We are
12: working on a, a proposal uh, for government to implement in their next um, agricultural policy framework. Uh, which actually is due to be looked at in 2023. And we've identified several uh, strategies that are tried and true and tested um, that would uh, reduce our uh, carbon emissions significantly over the next number of years.
1: Give us a couple of specifics.
12: So um, we, there are 18 key uh, practices that we've identified. And, and what I'll do, I'll just uh, touch on the five major categories uh, they are nitrogen management, uh, manure storage and handling, livestock management, soil management, wetland and tree management. And we've identified these five major categories as being the major contributors of CO2 emission across Canada. Um, so we've looked at these and done a cost per ton of, of uh, what, it, what it would cost Um, to remediate uh, massive amounts of of CO2 emissions um, if if we can effectively uh, implement the strategies that we've proposed.
1: Implementation of some of these strategies of course will cost money and it always inevitably does. So with farmers stretched pretty thin with the increased costs of feed or energy and fertilizer, how do you strike the balance or does this require inside the agricultural framework additional supports from different levels of government?
12: Oh, it absolutely does, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the cost of, well, it seems everything these days is, is rising and astronomically high already. Um, our proposal would be that the federal government, right now they've invested $200 million um, to um, farm-related practices to uh, decrease carbon emissions, and, and our proposal would be to increase that uh, in the next round uh, to um, over a five-year period, it will cost 1.8 billion uh, to reduce carbon emissions by 11.6 megatons, which which is quite a bit. And in, if we look at a particular example, in in 23, we'd be look, 2030, excuse me, we'd be looking at a reduction of about 15 million tons of CO2. And to put that into context. Um, that would be uh, like taking 3.2 million cars off the road. So with 30 million cars on the road in Canada, it's, it's, it would be about 10% of all cars taken off the road and their CO2 emissions, which is, is quite a large number.
1: I, I always think it's helpful when we draw the, uh, the straight line between you know megatons and how many cars that represents because I think that's something people can wrap their mind around. Okay, so in a percentage world, are we talking this 10% reduction, 20% reduction?
12: We're looking at about 20% reduction per, well, (laughs) it depends on the strategy implemented. Um, If you just implement, and and what I would like to talk about really are the two I think are most tangible for Newfoundlanders and Labradorians farming, and that would be soil management and livestock management, because I think those are the things that are most real and visible uh, for the public and farmers. And if all of the strategies proposed in our framework are implemented, um, it would reduce emissions by 20%, which is a, a huge part. Um, and, and and just as an example, uh, livestock management is, is, is subdivided into three categories, increased legumes in, in fields, rotational grazing and extended grazing periods. That would cost $32 million a year for a 10% reduction in greenhouse emissions that's a lot in terms of how much we're getting rid of for uh 32 million dollars soil management obviously is going to cost more uh and the the two categories that uh fall within soil management are cover cropping and intercropping which i'm I'm sure you're familiar with uh in 2028 that we'd be looking at an investment of about 341 million dollars per year but again a major, major reduction in CO2 emissions.
1: What role does crop rotation or fallow fields play in soil management?
12: Oh, I, I'm, I'm so glad you asked that. On our farm, I, I like to consider myself a soil farmer who grows vegetables uh, to, to pay the bills, kind of thing. It's a byproduct. Cover cropping and intercropping are so important. And we do cover cropping quite a bit, uh, and it helps in a number of ways.
1: Explain that no to the listener who doesn't know what cover cropping is.
12: Sure, absolutely. So what we do is whenever we're not growing a produce in a, in a, in a, in a bed, so um, if I'm not growing uh, something to sell, then we'll plant a cover crop like clover, buckwheat, oats, Um, something that's going to keep the soil from being bare because bare soil is unhappy soil. It erodes. It's baked by the sun. It's pounded by the rain. It's just not happy soil. So what cover cropping does in terms of CO2 emissions, um, it stores nitrogen In the soil, and if anyone is gardening, they notice that the numbers on the front of the fertilizer bag, those, you know, 10, 10, 10, the NPK, that first one, N, is for nitrogen. So nitrogen is a vital component of plant growth. It's what makes leaves green and and the plants look healthy. So what a cover crop actually does is it allows uh, the soil to trap nitrogen inside of it. So when I go to plant, uh, let's say uh, lettuce, in a in a bed that has had a co- cover crop, it has more access to nitrogen that's been stored. So I don't need to apply uh, a nitrogen amendment. Now we we are an organic farm, so we don't use synthetic fertilizers. But um, for a farmer who does, that's going to not only uh, help with uh, Uh, CO2 emissions, it's also going to help with cost because farmers know very well that fertilizer is not a cheap commodity these days. The other thing it does is called carbon sequestering. So whenever there's a plant in soil, what it's actually doing is it's removing CO2 from the atmosphere and storing it in the soil um, and it's reducing uh, CO2 emissions. So by having the soil uh, cropped or cover cropped at all times, You're maximizing the potential for that area to mitigate uh, CO2 emissions. And once the the cover crop is done, like if I plant a cover crop uh, between plantings of uh, garlic and fall peas, I'll put in a, a cover crop of buckwheat. Just before that goes to seed, I don't rip it out of the ground. I do what's called chop and drop. So I'll chop it right where it is. It'll drop on the ground. Uh, The roots will remain in the ground, so the carbon is staying in there. And the top layer is two things. One, it's feeding the soil because it's rotting back into the soil, so I'm gaining organic matter. Two, it's providing a mulch, so moisture retention is phenomenal compared to a bare ground planting. So the plants that I plant in there are happier. So there's a lot of benefits, co-benefits, that go along with cover cropping
1: happy soil equals happy yield
12: you said it right sir absolutely our model is actually uh, happy soil happy planet happy people so it's, it's <laughs> yeah <laughs> it goes hand in hand absolutely and i spend a tremendous amount of time looking through a microscope uh, to see just how happy our soil is and i can guarantee everyone that's listening a a a garden bed that has been cover cropped, managed correctly with a mulch, intercropped with different uh, species of plants and I think that's another thing that's very very important that we should talk about is diversity of what you're planting um, the results are just phenomenal
1: really appreciate you making time for the show this morning Nathan if people want to read more because there's a lot to this whether it be the road map or how you came up with these 19 different areas you're going to focus on, where do they go?
12: Uh, They can visit us on social media, on Twitter, on Instagram, all those wonderful social media things that are always full of only good news and nothing but good news. (laughs) Um, uh, We are uh, Farmers for Climate Solutions. You can type us into Google and and we'll be your first hit. Uh, And I'm happy to talk to anyone who has any questions. Um, If any of your listeners want to reach out and talk to me, they most certainly can. And... uh, yeah, if there is any way or anything that we can uh, address these issues, I think that's something we, we definitely need to do. Uh, we think groceries are expensive now. Uh, wait till we can't grow turnips in Newfoundland and see what happens.
1: <laughs> Nathan, uh, good to have you on the show this morning. Thanks for this. Thank you very much, sir. Appreciate your time. Bye-bye. Uh, it's Nathan Gidge, owner-operator at Kingfisher Farm out in Gambo South. Let's take our final break in the morning. When we come back, we're going to be discussing the fact that the former Pentacon employees that were employed at, uh, by Valet at Long Harbor, they're owed over $2.3 million in severance. We'll hear from James Farrell. He's the lawyer representing those folks at the FFAW. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number four, say good morning to FFAW lawyer James Farrell. Good morning, James. You're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me on. Happy to have you on. So, are you a lawyer at FFAW, or you're representing the FFAW?
0: I, I work at the FFAW. I'm a lawyer. I'm also a staff rep there. Uh, and so, um, yeah. So I'm involved in representing them in legal matters uh, and as well as uh, negotiating their agreements and things of that nature.
1: Okay. So when something seems as cut and dry as this, so they weren't, the Pentagon employees were not given the appropriate heads up or the amount of time prior to their dismissal on site at Valet, Long Harbor. It seems fairly cut and dry. Where's the legal standoff here if there's, you know, this is labor law and they didn't follow follow it or abide by it and the money is clearly owed? What's the, what's the hurdle
0: or hold up? Yeah, that's the, that's the $64,000 question, Patty. So you're right. There's no doubt, um, you know, based on the labor legislation in the province that these folks are entitled to this money. And, in fact, PennyCon has never disputed and have admitted, in fact, that, that these employees are entitled to the money. Uh, but, you know, we're approaching a month now uh, where these folks have been let 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 go and um, without any real valid excuse and for pretty shady reasons, I, I would submit. Um you know, they haven't had a, a penny since then, and have haven't received the the money that they're entitled to. We we don't know really why. We suspect um, valet, of course, is the uh, the mothership on on the job site there. Uh, and every, every cent, uh, every dollar that's paid out to employees on that site generally goes from Valet through a subcontractor and so we suspect the hold up uh, is with them at this time um, as well as PennyCon. You know, our position of course is that PennyCon is the employer here. PennyCon needs to pay the money and they can argue with Valet later about, uh, uh, you know, how it's, uh, who, who's responsible for what portions and uh, on what terms it, it, it ought to have been paid but our position clearly is that Needs to be paid out now, uh, and of course, you know the uh, the issue is is that the the processes that we normally employ, uh, the grievance and arbitration process, and court, if necessary, uh, you know those things are are. Um those are the, the the wheels grind slowly on, on those things. And so uh, we're hoping by bringing some public attention to this issue, uh, PennyCon will uh, do the right thing and, and pay the money now that it owes to these people before, uh, you know, uh, before bad things happen to them. Uh, bad things happen to the former employees, you know, uh, not being able to make payments. People are having to move their lives to find new jobs right now. And of course, we don't need to talk about the cost of living. And uh, these people have been without pay now for a month in many cases, and um, there's really no no justification or, or no excuse that, that's sufficient to explain it. Well,
1: who makes the final decision? I know you say that Pentagon will have to pay and fight with valet later, but is this a valet-based decision?
0: Well, everything on that job site, so without getting into the intricacies of um, of you know contractor subcontractor relations on that site, uh, essentially everything that happens, every dollar that's paid is is all kind of coming from valet as as the source. Uh, and so while Pennycon yes is 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 the true employer, uh, you know from a, a legal perspective, uh, we do know that you know all contractors on site are wholly reliant uh, generally on what valet uh, decides to drip to them or. not. Uh, it's kind of a clever relationship where Valet kind of pulls the strings, uh, but uh, but middlemen, uh, middle companies uh, take take hits uh, publicly. So you know, I just want to be very clear that this is both a PennyCon and a Valet issue. Even though at the end of the day, certainly our position is is PennyCon needs to issue the money and fight about it later.
1: Has there been a formal uh, legal action taken, or is there a time frame?
0: Yeah, so imp- employees actually, this actually arises from under under the Labor Standards Act, um, and unions generally oper- operate under a slightly different regime. Although the, the Labor Standards Act does apply, um, we we of course the the typical union union tool is to file a grievance, and we, of course we've done that weeks ago. Uh, but of course the you know the grievance procedure and the grievance process takes time. It has uh, it has steps, and uh, of course when you refer things to arbitration. Uh, you know, there are uh, often uh, lengthy lead times, right, uh, before you get there, before issues are, before uh, decisions are issued, and then the appeal process through court, uh, et cetera. So, um, you know, w- this is not going to... I mean, obviously, this would be over before it started. From a legal perspective, uh, it's just a matter of getting to the dance, so to speak. And uh, we don't have a lot of time right now uh, to, uh, you know to uh to delay because these employees obviously uh have bills that are are rolling in
1: is there anything that makes it mandatory to go through the normal union process versus go directly to court
0: it's a bit of a it's a bit of a complicated process. So employees actually kind of they they obviously are are free to make complaints under the Labor Standards Act. Uh, timelines for for complaints under the Act are in this instance six six months. So they have six months to to make their claim. Again, we, you know we've been in touch with Labor Standards continuously throughout this process. Who said that you know they've investigated it and they've gotten all the assurances from PennyCon that this money is forthcoming and they're just you know calculating the numbers and. Uh, you know, it it's going to come. Don't worry, it'll be it'll be out soon. But you know, it all kind of rings kind of hollow when you're at day 23 or or even later. And uh, you know, they've had lots of time uh, to make those calculations. They know exactly how much money these employees are owed. It's a very simple calculation, uh, and so uh, we, we we're not really buying it. Uh, they're kind of just buying time. So, and then there's from to answer your question directly, Patty. It's a it's complicated, but the The grievance and arbitration procedure for a union, it it encapsulates, you you know, arbitrators under the grievance and arbitration process, they have jurisdiction to make judgments based on occupational health and safety codes, based on labor standards acts, based on relevant legislation that's sort of central to the collective bargaining relationship or the uh, employee-employer relationship. So, yes, the grievance and arbitration process is a tool we can use to get at it, but also the labor standards process exists as well Uh, but again uh, you know we've been in contact with those uh, with those individuals and uh, they're not really uh, you know the 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 legal teeth will say is is not quite there in order to compel the money. If 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 we once we work it through the arbitration process, we can get these individuals their their money. But uh, just again, you know, the delays are 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 the problem here.
1: Uh, Last one quickly before I run out of time. Is there a normal or acceptable amount of time between dismissal and getting your severance? Like for instance, if I have a ninety day invoice
0: yeah so you know when you're a when you're an employee, the point of severance is to smooth out the to smooth out the period of time where you're going to be out of work and so the the expectation is is that once you get your last pay, you're provided that amount of money in a lump sum and if not that then you you continue to receive your normal pay over the next you know six to eight weeks depending on what how the notice works in your individual circumstance and so from our perspective at a Bare minimum, these employees should have been continued to get paid eight weeks after. Now, our legislation is lacking in the sense that it doesn't really provide these types of timelines explicitly, uh, but certainly, you know, from an equity and fairness perspective, um, and we think, you know, definitely in the eyes of the law, if, you know, this were a question in front of a decision maker, that would certainly be uh, the the, the likely outcome that it it can't be any later than what the pay periods would be normally.
1: the time this morning. You've had the last word, James.
0: Thank you, Patty. I appreciate that. Take, Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: That's James Farrell. He's a lawyer at the FFAW. Uh, and we are indeed out of time, but we'll pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.